This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the last day in November for 2020. December is just around the corner, so is Christmas, and 2021 is almost within sight. Hopefully next year is going to be a lot better for everybody with coronavirus behind us. But in the meantime, I sat down and had a conversation with Peter Carr, who is editor-in-chief at the Future Publishing Group. Uh, I've known him for a long time. Uh, he has been the editor of a publication that I contribute to uh, for more than a decade. And we've done many trips around the world together. Uh, we've also done a lot of filming together. He is involved in all manner of things, a very knowledgeable man. Uh, his background is rather intriguing from skippering a fishing boat to being a professional hunter to being deeply embedded in in conservation and wildlife protection. And you're going to hear all about that in the upcoming show. But before we get to that, a quick shout out because we've had a lot of new Patreons recently. So thank you very much if you have gone over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace and helped support producing these podcasts. The top tier patrons for this week include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RDContracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash are stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Galax Clothing, who are a new top tier supporter. So thank you very much. It's quite a list, quite a list in the top tier, but all of your support is massively appreciated. Now, I have an apology because as always on these long form podcasts, we run a competition, and that is to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, who are our partners on this show and help make this show possible. Uh, however, two weeks ago, I asked you to go and subscribe to the Modern Huntsman newsletter, which you can do on modernhuntsman.com. But I forgot to reach out to the team and find out who had subscribed in the last two weeks. Uh, so I don't have any names. And to be fair, we have just sent volume six to print. So the last two weeks have been kind of chaotic. Uh, but anyway, so what I'm going to do is we're going to keep this competition running. But in two weeks' time, when I do the next podcast, which might actually be the last one for the new year, I'm not sure yet, uh, we'll, I'll just announce two winners. So head over to modernhuntsman.com, subscribe to the newsletter. There's really fascinating content comes out, uh, I think, once a week. And uh, there's a lot of online content now from Modern Huntsman as well, some really interesting columns from some great writers. I actually contribute to one column a month. It's called Into the Anthropocene. And you can get a sort of a science roundup of the things that are important in the world of environmentalism and conservation. So that's all on the Modern Huntsman website. Go subscribe. And in two weeks' time, I will have a list of names. And I will announce two winners to win a copy. And of course, volume six is available for pre-order. So again, head over to their website, get a copy of volume six, because I don't think I've ever had so much fun and been so proud of um, a collection of writers and artists, including you know, the contribution that I put into this volume myself. I'm sitting there beside so many talented people, and it's a great privilege to be part of it. So you need to get that book in your hands. But I am not going to keep you any longer. If you want to have a look at anything that I'm up to, uh, the best place for that is to probably go over on Instagram. I'm trying to get a little bit better at uh, 
keeping up to date with what's going on there, but I have been a little busy recently. And so I haven't posted for a while. Uh, but if you just go over to at Byron J Pace, you can see what I'm up to on Instagram. And that does post to Facebook, but I don't interact much there anymore. And of course, my website, which is just byronpace.com. Head over there and you'll see some of the film projects of the past, some of the stuff that I'm working on in the future, um, along with a little bit of info and a bio and all that kind of stuff. It's a, a fairly new revamp of the site. So worth checking out if you haven't seen it already. Uh, but with all that said, I hope that you enjoy this conversation between me and Peter Carr. Pete, welcome to the show. It's been a long time since you were on. I was just trying to rack my brains out. I think... I think actually the only time, that, which is really bad of me, but also you're a busy man, that you've been on the show was probably about three years ago at the Northern Shooting Show. And I think we did a podcast about firearms and licensing or something. Yeah, that's right. And forgive the cliche, but time certainly flies. It uh, absolutely does. Yeah, yeah. So I'm clearly, yeah, I'm still on your Christmas card list. So at least um, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the network, but uh, we... we <laughs> We need to talk more often, Byron. I, I almost don't even know where to start this conversation. I've been looking forward to like nailing you down for an hour or two because you're so busy, I never get a chance to catch up with you. Um, let, let's, let's start with this as, as a bit of background because this is something that I probably haven't even talked about really myself on the podcast. Is We first spoke or kind of first met, how old am I now? I'm 33, Th- probably about 13 years ago, Pete. You realize it's that long. I was maybe nineteen, twenty. I know it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, right. uh, and at the time, you were you were uh, at the time you were a contributor along with me of a very new publication. It hadn't been going for very long called Sporting Rifle. That's correct. Yeah. So how how did that actually start for you? So how did you end up contributing there more uh, than a decade ago? Oh well, really, it's James Marchinson's fault. You know, the, you know, the former. Uh, well. The, current editor of Clay Shooting Magazine, uh, big game shot, trout fisherman, stalker, and uh, all-round good chap. Uh, he, he was uh, the editor of, uh, back then, would have been Sporting Shooter. And, okay. and I submitted uh, an article to him, a big game hunting article to, to, to James, and uh, he basically said, oh, uh, my publisher had I'd go crazy if we published anything about big game hunting. So he said, Sporting Rifles just been launched, edited by Charlie Jacoby, emphasis on the O. Uh, <laughs> and, he, and James is quite, and I quote James, it was, a, he'll publish anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is pretty much true. <laughs> so I submitted that to, uh, article to Charlie, and after that, uh, the, the next issue, I had a, a, a column, a deer stalking column, and a, a sport abroad column for Sporting Rifles. Which six months later, Charlie decided he was going to leave to launch Field Sports Channel. Uh, and then I started within six months, I was editor of the magazine, and within 12 months, I was editor in chief. And then I think three years later, I was uh, editor, uh, editorial director at Blaze Publishing for the uh, Field Sports division. So it was kind of that, quite a, a rapid rise. I was going to say, that's quite a rise up through the ranks. And prior to you c- contributing and saying, hey, I'm going to write this story about big game hunting, uh, which we're going we're gonna to dig into all the facets of that as we go on with this conversation. But had you done much writing before? Uh, just at, uh, at college uh, and a few, submitted a few articles uh, to newspapers, you know, uh, regional newspapers and 
various uh, other uh, military history articles, that kind of thing, but not nothing f- full time. Uh, but I was kind of did a fair bit of uh, investigative journalism uh, in, in niche areas, uh, mostly actually in the in the the illegal wildlife uh, trade, uh, investigating that, or actually finding people. That was kind of a a skill set of mine was I was pretty good at tracking people down. So, so yeah, the the illegal wildlife trade. Um, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about that. I think probably on this podcast. But while I'm busy studying right now for the um, my master's course, I keep being drawn to that element of the the concept, like the the fight for conservation is is the illegal wildlife trade. But actually, no, I should correct myself. Not just the illegal wildlife trade, but the the wildlife trade as a whole of which there is an illegal component to and when i talk about wildlife trade not just not just mammals i mean the, the most of the trade in the world is actually in plants <laughs> uh but i find this this interaction and the um the connection that we have and the economic drivers around the world that are facilitated by wildlife trade i think are very very misunderstood and they can be a great force for good and bad for protecting and also Da- severely damaging wildlife and biodiversity around the world. Uh, absolutely, uh, I, I mean, there's issues with illegal wildlife trade in some areas for sure. But the uh, the illegal wildlife trade uh, it, it's it's the fourth uh, biggest illegal uh, business after uh, human trafficking, firearms, uh, and drugs. So that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's, it's up right there. Up you know, there. I, I mean, it's, it's Organized crime at the highest level uh, deal in wildlife trade, so illegal wildlife products. So uh, it's it's a big thing. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but uh, before we before we get there, um, I, I, I want to backtrack. So we we started, which was you pub- getting published really for, for the the first time in the field sports world, and then suddenly you're now an editor of a publication. But prior, to, so how old are you? like roughly speaking when when that happened so when, when i kind of first met you because I, I don't even know how old you are now when i first met you you were a, very, a much younger man uh, how old were you then i uh, must have been at 16 i guess <laughs> that makes me about five <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not telling you how old i am barry <laughs> <laughs> but you, you i mean you'd had um yeah <laughs> You'd had a career up to that point, um, and largely in uh, well, you have a fishing background, uh, professional hunting background. Talk me through some of that because you've had you've tried your hand at quite a number of things over the years prior to becoming full time, being an editor in, involved in print media. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, uh, I, I always wanted to be a gamekeeper. That was kind of my calling in life. Uh, so that's so why I trained as a gamekeeper. Uh, attended Bishop Burn College. Then I went on to uh, keepering a posi- position at Sprotley Grange in East Yorkshire, then uh, Farndale in North Yorkshire. So I always wanted to work with grouse. So that was great. Uh, and then it was interesting from there. Uh, I made some great contacts uh, when I was at college and, and, and in, in, in the game shooting world, uh, both in the UK and, and abroad. Uh, in Africa and in mainland Europe, and actually, I let some some uh, mountain hare days for uh, a, 
through a friend of mine I went to college with and and from there I that kind of morphed into becoming a, a sporting agent which which was great I had a great period of my life actually expanded into Europe and into Africa running sporting trips and uh running safaris and and overseas hunting trips which was which was great uh met some great people uh met some real assholes as well but you know that's, <laughs> That's the human race, you know. Unfortunately, we're the, the 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 worst example of a species on the planet, really. Uh, but I did meet some really good guys that uh, very good friends to this day, and a fantastic adventurous life. I wouldn't change it at all. I've never had a mundane job yet. So, who wants um, a mundane job? Exactly. But there's plenty of people who have mundane jobs, which is you know it's kind of a sad part of the of of the world and and and, and existence, but. You know. Yeah, it's it's something I've always struggled with because I've done some mundane jobs, but uh, I I never last very long because I I just cannot take the tedium of it. So forgive the knock. That's a postman delivering. Got one to collect. Yeah, <laughs> and collecting. Yeah, and collecting actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so so yeah, that that kind of went went on there so for a, a good decade or so, which was brilliant, uh, and it, it got me around different parts of the world, but. Uh, there was an interim period. Uh, my father had a trawler company, so I was commercial fishing for quite some time uh, as well. And then I uh, actually studied a little bit, got my skipper's ticket, and ran uh, a, a charter uh, angling um, vessel for, for a while, which was great, living in deck shoes and shorts all summer. So it was fantastic. Uh, did a stint on a lifeboat as well. Uh, so I quite enjoyed that the maritime aspect, but I always wanted to work uh, with game, with wildlife. So that, that, that's kind of the, 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 the calling brought me back to it. Uh, yeah. Now, you, you mentioned mountain hare there. I mean, we, have, we have a lot of people on the podcast who don't – although when we started, a lot of my conversations were around um, you know, hunting and fishing and exploration. We've kind of – we've morphed a lot. We talk a lot about conservation. We talk a lot about um, the science of – of nature and wildlife and all the all the elements that pull that together so that we can live in a more sort of sympathetic way in our landscape. And you mentioned mountain hare there, which was, I mean, we're talking quite a long time ago, um, driven mountain hare days, which you were letting. Now, for some people in their minds, maybe listening to this, there'll be a little alarm bells will be ringing in their head because mountain hares, so these white fluffy hares, and particularly in the mountains of Scotland, Every year, almost without fail, in around February time, appear in the news because there's big campaigns to stop the hunting of them. And in fact, I'm uh, just trying to get my timelines right. It was this year, 2020. They've put restrictions in place where it's going to be there's going to be a licensing system if you want to go and hunt them now um, in Scotland. What, what is the uh, what? T- tell me a little bit about the history of hunting mountain hares in Scotland, which I think is where you were predominantly doing it, Pete, and and where the controversies lie. Well, it's it's like anything. I mean, when it, when it comes to wildlife management, it's, man has upset it. Our forefathers, through their own ignorance, you know, have upset the, uh, have upset the balance of nature, and, it, and it's down to this generation to try and manage that. And unfortunately, a lot of the damage has been done, but it, it, it's not... It's not over, so we, so we need to manage it as best we can. Uh, the mountain hares is a really good example. So, if they're on, on keepered ground, uh, they they bounce back 
quite quickly. So if you get an over uh, abundance of population, you're going to have to manage that population. And and the driven shoots is a, 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 a very effective way of of managing uh, a burgeoning hair population. Of course, you know. It's all about the management. It's not shoot, sh- shooting them off the hill. Like the, the, there's a lot of stories of just monoculture of grouse, which is that's that's bad in anybody's book. That that that's not conservation. That's this monoculture of grouse. As much as like that's going to raise hackles on, uh, on 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 in certain areas, it's wrong. You know, it, we, the, the, there should be a balance, and we should maintain a balance. And that's what the UK's gamekeepers are really good at is is maintaining that balance. Once it gets that massive commercial aspect on it, uh, the, you know the monoculture mono of grouse is no good for, for for gamekeeping. It's no good for game shooting. It's no good for conservation. Unfortunately, there's there's not too much of that, but there there has been some of that. Uh, so it's a roundabout way of answering your questions. I'm speaking like a politico, but uh, <laughs> yeah, look, if there's an abundance, let's manage it. If there isn't, let's let, let, let let's preserve it. Let let's conserve it, and then uh, you know it's down to how we manage it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think that the in terms of the public perception, I, I think there's two issues there. Is one is the with the media reports, and particularly on on the back of, of a small number of uh, of characters of fairly high profile, the public are led to believe that they are almost on the brink of extinction. In Scotland, uh, I mean, they, their populations have declined, but they've declined historically. I mean, they they're, they're actually our only native hare species. So, and if you want to really go back and talk about the decline of mountain hare populations, then uh, let, let's let's talk about the introduction of brown hares by I think it was the the Romans. I think did the Romans bring brown hares? Do you know, I'm not sure if it was the Romans or the Normans, but the Normans could have been the Normans. But certainly, the Normans did introduce, did bring hares over. So, whether the Romans had already done so, I'm not so sure. But if they had, they were certainly supplemented by the Romans. Yeah, by, by the Normans. Uh, sorry, forgive me. Good old William. Yeah. William, <laughs> William Rufus. And and that pushed mountain hares into the into the mountains into this much poorer uh, habitat where they've actually thrived, but they were way down onto the low ground before the brown hare arrived. Uh, and, it, and it is true. I, I mean, I'm, I like to think that I'm someone, uh, particularly now with a bit of, with a, a bit of age and, and a bit more worldly experience where I can, I can look at these different elements of the hunting world of which i am a part of i i don't hunt anything like as much as i used to just for time more than anything else but look at controversial aspects like the mountain hair for example and look at look at the science and and understand it to the best of my ability to try and work out what 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 fundamentally is the truth here and unless i can be shown otherwise i believe it is true that on just as you mentioned that on managed grouse moors, good managed grouse moors, they have a much higher abundance of white hair than on non-managed ground, and so that has to tell you something, and that has to be um, that has to be brought into the conversation when we're talking about licensing hairs for 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 management, for for harvesting, for culling. And I think that that's really, really misunderstood. I think quite deliberately so, the way it's portrayed in the media, which really frustrates me. 
No, agreed. And it, it's interesting that you're just reminding back to the start of uh, of your passage there, really, it's the, the, the mountain hare was a low ground species occupying uh, a greater range than what it does today. But if you compare it to its closest relative, which is the Irish hare, you, you, you get that. the Irish hares on the low ground and they're very similar. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting how it, the, the, they've retracted to the higher ground. And, and, and then you can almost like get a, a north-south dividing line in the fact that uh, – the east side, central highlands and the east eastern highlands have, have higher population of hares than, than the than the western side, and it's and it, it's an interesting fact that the hare can stand all the cold and snow you throw it out, but it doesn't like mild weather. And again, global warming's affecting the the mountain hares. The, the, in the west, you can see it this long, fluffy hair that traps the the, the air uh, in in its coat. It's the gets wet it doesn't have those insulation qualities and and, and that that's the, the the primary reason why the the west coast of scotland which is the the, the wetter side doesn't have a, a high population of hares uh but uh, to, to 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 finish where you just left off uh i think facts and stats is what we should be basing decisions on and not not the old anti-rhetoric it's the, the it's it, it's rolled out the same old, churning out the same old story, uh, and I think even the the, the non the non shooting uh, public are kind of even bored of that. So we need facts and stats, and we need, and, and any decision making, any any, any policy ma- policy making must be backed with credible facts and stats. Hmm. It makes me think of uh, two instances that I've seen in the last two weeks that just they pissed me off so much. Now, the first one was. Um, it was originally posted by a very well-known and respected photographer who does a lot of stuff for Nat Geo, and then it actually appeared on the Nat Geo uh, like Instagram feed and through their social channels, and then was picked up by some other like social tags. And it was this big story being made of an in inverted commas um, uh, tagging and protecting the last white giraffe. It was the last white giraffe in this area. And I mean, this was just it was just a leucistic giraffe, which actually occur with quite uh, with quite a lot of frequency across Africa, and is a uh, genetic mutation which would be um, which would be selected out in in nature because it's of absolutely no advantage whatsoever, and yet they were making this big deal about color like darting collaring and monitoring this giraffe because apparently the other two of this group of three had been poached um and there's not by comparison to other species giraffes are not poached with you know particular um particular frequency and it really pissed me off because of the way that that story was portrayed for a start they were making it out like it was the last i mean you had to really read the detail to try and like way past the headlines to try and really understand that, no, that this was just the last one of a particular group of three on one reserve. And But the next thing is that, well, who cares? You know, for all the conservation work that really needs to go on to save species, to protect ecosystems and habitats, why are we wasting time just because it, they know that it's something that will go, uh, that photographs well because it's it's unusual. They know that it's a story that will run because it's the kind of thing that people like to, um, 
like to rally around, you know, the last white giraffe. But it's really not reflecting conservation, I think, in, in a very good light at all. And we're, we're quite guilty of this in terms of the conservation space of harnessing these like bullshit stories, really. And sometimes it can be done in a really good way where it, it attracts a lot of, of interest and, and maybe funding. But I thought that this example was one that really muddies the water and confuses people as to what we really mean about useful conservation. I don't know if you saw that story, Pete. Did you? Yeah, I did. I, I did actually, uh, but I, I sort of I, I flicked through it. I did. I, I did stop and read it, but just uh, just quickly. Uh, but look, there's a lot of passionate people in the conservation space, but there's a there's a lot of very well educated people, and, and I, I, I don't mean uh, people swimming in academia, uh, academia, but I mean people also that have had a lot of experience in the field. So, but still, there is a lot. A lot more people there that are passionate that don't have a lot of experience, but you know it, it's all down to funding and 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 conservation. Unfortunately, that the, the model is it's kind of it's holding your hand out and it's grants and uh, interested people, high net worths uh, and, and foundations that 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 give the money to conservation. So that they, they need a platform to attract. Uh, that money and 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 get the people the the, the public's buy-in. Uh, I kind of understand why some of these stories are playing on the emotion, but uh, I also agree with you that it kind of it does dilute that message when they're they're kind of not playing on the facts. So it's like as you say, you know, it could, if it was a black giraffe, it'd be a melanistic giraffe. If it's uh, if it's blue eyes and white white fur, it's leucistic. You know, if it's white with red eyes, it's it's albinism. But you know, it's it's just a, uh, it's not a separate species. It's not no, not even. And it's of no, it's of no real value to the species. Actually, in fact, I would even go as far to saying is putting extra conservation effort into these particular genetic mutations is has an adverse effect on the species. Because you shouldn't be you shouldn't be deliberately perpetuating that. I mean, a lot of that's recessive, so it will uh, it will pitch up periodically uh, in in the species. But yeah, I mean, you're you're being a more pragmatic. I was so riled when I saw that because I just I just know how much work is required and how difficult funding is, just as you've pointed out. And it just seemed like an incredible waste of of time and really misguiding people as to the kind of conservation which should be going on. And it shouldn't be... I mean, you know what it actually reminded me of? Uh, and this has kind of died now. Is, in a weird way, it was... It, it reminded me of this parallel of um, color variants in the hunting world, in particularly in South Africa. And I was thinking to myself, these same people who are making a big deal about this giraffe that just happens to be a slightly different color... Uh, than the than the sort of the type specimen of the species are the same people and and I disagreed with the whole color color variation bullshit anyway but these are the same people who were making a big deal of it at the time and now just because it suits their purpose they're making a big deal of this slightly different color giraffe okay granted they are not deliberately breeding for it um, you were probably uh, I mean it's quite a few years ago now when the color variation in South Africa was at its height. But for people who don't understand that, what was the kind of the lead up and the background to that crazy market? Well, it's, I think the driver was the, was American uh, hunting tourists. And, and, you know, 
inverted commas, they, uh, they, they like different colour farms to put on their wall, which is kind of the, the, the worst end of, of trophy hunting. And it's kind of, it's a bit spooky, really, if you, if you think of it. Uh, they just want a different, an animal of different colour uh, to hang it on the wall. Whereas, you know, trophy, trophy hunting per se uh, is, is a tool of conservation in certain areas. Uh, you know, and uh, it's, not, it's not the answer. It's not the whole answer, but it's certainly part of the answer. Uh, I mean, we look at the, the, the whole wild, wild lion situation, hunting lions in, in Tanzania. If it wasn't for the, the hunting of lions in Tanzania, uh, there would be a lot of habitat would disappear and, and, a, and a lot of lions would disappear. Uh, yeah. and well, can't... we're seeing that already, though, aren't we? Because when the, um, when the American trade ban came in from the, I think it must have been from the ESA, the endangered, from the Endangered Species Act implemented in the US, then all of a sudden they couldn't bring uh, their trophy product, any byproduct actually, of the hunts back into the US. And my understanding from speaking, and this isn't actually it's not even speaking to hunters in Tanzania, although I have spoken to a number, but actually speaking to some biologists on the ground doing lion research, is that these concessions which were used uh, as hunting concessions, have been given back to the government because they simply can't make money on it anymore. And as a result of which, uh, a lot of the populations of various species within these concessions have declined. It was it was Dr. Amy Dickman who was talking about it, actually, on this podcast maybe six months ago. So exactly what you've just said is is actually playing out in real time as a result of that. You know, like we're back to the facts and stats things again, and Amy's very good at that. She... she You've got a great example there of, of where things have gone badly wrong because uh, trophy hunting was actually maintaining habitat, was maintaining uh, local national uh, employment, etc. And and and, uh, but that's what you need. You need you need the facts and stats, and you need credible examples. You can't just you know use a a, a tired old argument. It needs to be backed up. People are, are much more savvy these days. They want to understand you. Social media is there. It's, it's so it's so much quicker now than it was even in, even in our day. So we, you know, I can remember actually having to check facts by going to the library and look and, and <laughs> check a, a fact that I can I can check in thirty seconds now. Uh, although you can't always believe Wikipedia, you know it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you do need to cross ref. Uh, you absolutely do. It, 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 the, the first thing it, when uh, when it came to like the big. Um, the methods for referencing when I started my new course was the first thing at the top of that was Wikipedia can be useful, but please never reference Wikipedia in any papers you submit to the university. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Dig into the original sources is the key. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, you know, it's kind of, it, that, that you, you just bringing that memory up there. It's kind of brought a memory back to me. Uh, actually I was at, at, at sea, uh, in, in, in command of a, a, a fast fishing vessel, and uh, looking at the GPS and, and uh, on the screen, and, and the first thing it says in all these manuals is that this is an aid to navigation and must not be uh, not be relied upon. Always stick to the reckoning. And I was looking at the blip, and the Gulf War was on at the time, and they turned all the sat- the, uh, the GPS satellites off. <laughs> And uh, I remember going aground on Cleaness Sandbank, heading towards Grimsby, and then running the, the vessel aground. So yeah, I kind of yeah yeah just brought that memory back there. <laughs> I've got a cold sweat on. 
<laughs> I'll bet you obviously got it back off the sandbag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the propellers look like two sunflowers when we uh, actually put it. <laughs> yeah. Just going back to Africa and the and the trophy hunting discussion. This year in the Queen's speech, restricting I mean, we've just been talking about the restriction of trophy imports and and maybe i mean maybe we need to have a little discussion around what actually what is meant by that because it's 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 actually products of the animal they don't have to just be for an in inverted commas a trophy from my understanding but it looks like we are going to have similar restrictions on certain animal species in the uk just as they've implemented like for lions in the us what, what are you, where are we with that whole process right now because there was a lot of noise about it at the time i remember actually when it was first mentioned this is prior to the queen's speech um, it was first mentioned by the government through, I think it was Zach Goldsmith at the time, and I was I was in a, in the back of a cab in France. I remember when it came through on BBC News, uh, which was this this time last year, I think. Okay, uh, well, do, two things. One, one thing I don't want to forget about is the is the giraffe situation. Uh, so, oh, okay, we can go back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the you know, I mean, certain subspecies of giraffe, like, and and so the Cordofan giraffe are. are are in dire straits, uh, and, and the, the giraffe as a species isn't actually doing that well. You know, the the, the, the South African uh, hunting market, there's a lot of giraffes there, and they bounce back quite quickly if they're in a, uh, a protected area, small area. But I mean, you get issues if they've got a bull giraffe one side of a fence and a bull giraffe at the other, then you've got some big issues going on. But the giraffe itself isn't doing that well, so you know, bringing attention that, to, to these leucistic. Uh, giraffes which is uh, as you say is kind of a, a storm in a teacup but you know really the attention should should be at, at actually on on, on the, uh, the, uh, the 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 conservation of, of some of these subspecies that are in dire straits you know that is uh, something we where that whole giraffe story should be centered around is is, is actually the the, the the protection of some of these uh, subspecies in certain parts of africa that are, are in a in a bad place right now uh, yeah no it is really you're, you're right it is very much worth pointing that out uh, but it is interesting that where particularly in the southern part of africa because a lot of the the the, the, the subspecies you're talking about are in in central africa the, the ones that are really have declined rapidly um, but in in southern africa uh they are doing normally on hunting uh, reserves or farms really very well and if they are in an environment where there's a reason to keep them they can they can um they can proliferate really quickly in fact my one i brought up this example before i think we actually even talked about it when i did my interview with um alex olofsson is they have thirty thousand hectares in namibia and they have to their offtake of giraffes every year is about 200 animals and that is just to keep the population static and they use that. They trade some of that meat through the meat markets, and then they also feed a lot of that meat to their camps. So it, it is possible if there is uh, the right incentives and the and the right funding in place for for protection that they can thrive. But I guess the issue here is that uh, that is not the case, particularly in more complicated political situations and ability to control uh, poaching in in Central Africa. You know, it's a bigger issue when you when you 
in, in the smaller uh, reserves that they've got in South Africa uh, and, and, and the, the, the whole game farming industry, it, it, it's so much more artificial. I mean, there is some great places, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of smaller places and uh, it's kind of put and take, which is, is not it's not a great story for conservation. Uh, the Central African uh, giraffe populations, the, 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 you talk, it's actually protected area management and it's a protected area. It's a big area. It's preserving that habitat. It's the biodiversity of the species in that area. And, and that's where a, you know, a, a, a lot of this funding is concentrated and, and quite rightly so. So, uh, yeah. I'm what has been the big drivers of their decline? Is it is it habitat loss or is it a combination of that plus plus poaching i'm assuming just from meat is there any byproducts from giraffes that i just don't know about yeah, that they're being meat. targeted for there's a lot of meat on a giraffe so it's kind of if they put a lot of effort into bringing the giraffe down they're going to get a lot of meat out of it the bush bush meat trade i mean around the world but um particularly we normally think about the continent of africa when we're talking about the bush meat trade there has been i would say a it is can and can be massively damaging for a lot of species. I mean, the pangolin is an interesting one because there's two elements to it. There's the international trade for the scales, predominantly going to Asian markets for um, Chinese traditional medicine. But there is also a massive element of the the pangolin bushmeat trade, which is just for that. It is for eating them, and it has been done traditionally, as well as um, some local um, medicinal purposes as well, Um, which we we talk, when we're looking at at something like that, it can be very easy sitting in the West to say, well, that's terrible. You know, the bushmeat trade's a terrible thing because it is entirely responsible for uh, the decimation of populations. But in order to stop and counter that, there has to be an alternative source for that meat. And actually, there are some examples where a regulated um, bushmeat trade, where there are restrictions on areas that can be hunted, actually does function quite well and means that you don't need an increase in agriculture and that increase in agriculture is a change in land use, which is actually the greatest driver of biodiversity loss in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's about, it's it's not just about the species. It's about protecting that protected area. It's habitat, maintaining habitat. And, and there's, it's, it's geographical. So you, the, 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 the drivers uh, in one area will be different to the other other area, and that's 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 often overlooked. Uh, but then you you also have to look at the indigenous populations, and you know, say so, uh, a lot a lot of these the, 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 these indigenous populations are based on 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 cattle farming. So that you know, as the species expands, as in the human species expands, then that they're going to want more area. So it's a big argument, and I think. The, the the biggest threat to the planet is the is the ever increasing population of the human race. So it's kind of how big does this you know this subject go really? Because if you want to boil it down and 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 come up with some answers, it's like yeah, we want to stop breathing as fast as what we are. And then there's there's nowhere like Africa that's uh, increasing in population. Africa and Asia, you know, it's burgeoning populations. Uh, in the West, not so much, but you know, it's kind of that's the answer. You know, well, that's the problem. 
you know, we need an answer to that. That's that's what wants answering. And that, but that really comes down to education, doesn't it? We know from plenty of examples around the world and from from many many studies that educating, particularly women, um, can help reduce that. You end up with lower birth rates with the higher the level of of education that you facilitate um, around the world, and that is a a very good reason for funding to be funneled into education in these poorer parts of the world for that for that very reason yeah well if you if you're talking about education on contraception tell tell that to a catholic do you know what i mean so you've got to (laughs) well i mean yeah religion is a problem as well yeah yeah so you know it's culture and religion you've got to take all there's so many variables to look at and again that's you know it's geographical as well, so it's cultural and geographical. So you're getting into the, the, this argument. I'll you know grow arms and legs very very quickly. But the, the, the fact is that the, the widening population, human race, uh, is now expanding into protected, you know, onto the edge of these protected areas. Just just look at uh, the, the, these larger protected areas now, and then and, and then look at the encampments around them. They're almost surrounded. You know, they can't go in the protected areas. So. So the populace lives just outside the protected area, and that's that's going to increase. So we'll end up with islands. There'll be Jurassic parks. In fact, uh, Dr. Pete Markle, who's the, the famous rhino vet, you know, he's, he's great, absolute top bloke, uh, and he says it as it is. And you know, he, he's looking forward. He once said to me, "In the future, we might just have uh, a dozen, twenty Jurassic parks in Africa," which is kind of scary if you somebody of that experience, that background. Uh, that, that knowledge, that you know, that brain capacity, and that understanding of conservation—if that that his projection is that that's what we're going to have—is some Jurassic parks. That's quite scary. It it scares me. And I've read a book recently um, by a biologist called Alistair Graham that was written back in the seventies. He did a lot of stuff with um, Peter Beard. Um, back, you know, obviously Peter Beard died sadly this year, um, but he was a fairly old man, I think in, in his 80s. I, I'm not sure if Alistair Graham is still alive. I'm trying to track him down. If everyone, anyone on the podcast knows Alistair Graham, I think he lives in Australia now. I would love to have a conversation with him. But even back then, he was talking about it. I mean, this is, you know, we're like 50 years ago, and he was talking about these gazetted paradises and how false and artificial um, these protected areas are. And he actually said, look, the necessity to create a national park or a reserve is um, an admittance of failure. Because in his view, we needed to be able to, and this, I suppose this is most definitely tied into the fact that this might not be possible with these projections of population increases. But as humans, we need to be integrated within the landscape. And, and live within it and live within the means of it rather than having these, as you described it, these little islands of reserves everywhere. And we know there was a recent study out this year that despite all the work that has gone on, and we, we are inc- increasingly protecting areas, whether that be marine reserves or terrestrial reserves, that the problem is they are not connected. I think the research suggests that only 10% of all 
these reserves around the world are actually connected to any other reserve. And that is a massive problem. That is a massive problem for genetic flow. That is a, a massive problem for the longevity of the species, which didn't evolve in these just little encapsulated it kind of reminds me of it's like a fucking snow globe you know <laughs> they're living in these these snow globes that we all stand around the edge and look at and marvel at and then go back to our modern life and that is not a future of conservation that i want to see hey look you know it's good uh, I, i'm with you uh, I, the, there there are some the, the, these protected area corridors in between uh uh, reserves and, and, and national parks, and it, it depends on the uh, on the species. But looking at elephant and uh, the, the the whole uh, life cycle of an elephant, they they, they move massive dist- uh, distances, and, and and they're they're so important to to the habitat for uh, you know that they'll push trees over, uh, eat you know crap out seeds twenty miles away, and that you know it's it's all but that that, that whole elephant system uh, and their life cycle is so important to the landscape and 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 they've just been in, in increasingly uh hemmed in into into areas and, and and that's into protected areas and that's where you get human wildlife conflict and they, they want to be outside which is increasing all yeah. the time yeah and, and, and elephants if they're protected bounce back very very quickly uh and then you get an overabundance and then that that needs to be to be looked at how do you manage that overabundance because you know the uh, a five-ton animal is not that easy to to <laughs> put it on a lead and, 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 and walk it to the next place. So you've got some big issues there. Uh, but you know we're still back to that expansion of the of the human race. What do you uh, just talking about? Elf, I mean, there's so many th- other things I want to touch on now, but uh, just off the back of what we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes, but um, the uh, elephants and the ivory trade. Do you have? Do you remember the big? Because it was, I was, I think I was probably too young. Although I feel like I remember it because I've seen videos since, and I've read a lot of books where you see the pictures. Those early burning piles of ivory tusks. Do you think that helped? Do you think that sent the message that they were hoping to send for, uh, like, the protection of of um, elephants around the world, or was that more just a? A mechanism for attracting attention more than what it would actually do to the the illegal trade. Well, I, I think it was both, really. I mean, it, if it does bring attention to the illegal ivory trade, then then it was a success. Uh, I mean, back in the day, I thought, look, you know, there, there, there were some of these ivory sales, the, the stock CITES allowed stockpile sales. I think Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Namibia. I'm just going by memory, so I may be wrong. And I thought, well, that, as long as that money went back into conservation, then I thought that was great. You know, there was stockpiled ivory, confiscated ivory. Uh, obviously, elephants die, so it was collected ivory. But now, uh, I've, I've had a complete change of mind on on, on that. You, you know, the, the, the ivory trade uh, is the driver for elephant poaching elephants for their ivory. So if there is no ivory trade, then there won't be a demand for ivory. So... It, you know, it's not demand reduction. It wants to be that trade is archaic. Uh, it, it's the primary driver for the loss of elephants, which you know, hundred thousand elephants uh, have disappeared since I, I, I've been involved in, in in the magazine, if not more. So, really, but do you think though? I mean, if we look at 
I will, I'll just go back to pangolins because I happen to know about that because I just did a lot of reading and, and wrote a paper on it. Uh, they were moved to uh, CITES Appendix 1, which is effectively bans international trade a couple of years ago. But that hasn't done really anything to the trade whatsoever. It, well, it doesn't appear to. It's very difficult to actually know because you only really know what the illegal trade is when you find an illegal shipment and nobody has got a flag to show you here's an illegal shipment here. So it's, it's quite difficult to really quantify that. But there are, I mean, um, rhino horn is another, is another one. That didn't seem to really quell the thirst for rhino horn into Asia just because you weren't legally allowed to export it. Although I do understand what you're saying because the, one of the arguments is that if there is a legal component and a massive illegal component of a trade, it can be used uh, as a cover for importing that particular product. Again, Pangolin in Asia, there you're still allowed, I, th I think I'm, I might stand corrected on this, but I think you're still allowed to trade in captive bred Pangolin, of which the experts say, well, actually, there are no captive-bred pangolin because they really do not keep very, very well in, in um, captivity. But the fact that that exists is used as a cover for the actual illegal trade of wild products. No, exactly. The, 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 there's a loophole that they, 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 they want to keep open so then they can carry on the illegal trade and, and pangolins will suffer. You know, it's, it's a ridiculous the amount of pangolins that are killed, and and to to, to say, uh, uh, an Asian desire to to eat these uh, different kind of meats that you know we we have to be careful. Like we've got you know, we can't import our, our brand Western values on other cultures, but you know equally we can't stand by and 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 watch another culture destroy. Uh, wildlife on a different continent, indeed, even on their own continent. But yeah, yeah, which it, which is the main driver for the international uh, demand for pangolins out of Africa was the fact that there was basically none left in Asia. Although it is interesting to note, just this year, that the uh, the sort of governing body, for want of a better description, which defines the list of species that is that are used for Chinese traditional medicine, has taken pangolin off the list. And I think that that particular move might be the most um, productive enforcement. No, not not so much enforcement, but um, signal as to the direction of travel and is a, a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel for that particular species. Because although there will be people who still want it, I think that that is, that is a very positive move in the right direction. Because essentially what that says is if it's off their, if it's off their official list, is, well, it's probably not of any use to you. And, and, and it removes another reason for people wanting it and a desire, especially as younger generations come through even those who are still using traditional Chinese medicine, because I don't think you will, you're not going to remove that out of thousands and thousands of years that it's been established in their culture. But by making it sympathetic to the modern world and the population declines around the world, which is what they seem to have done by removing it from that list, I think is a, is a positive move in the right direction. Well, I mean, look, it's going to be down to China and uh, China, as uh, Donald Trump would say. Um, uh, and, and you know various southeastern uh, southeast asian countries that, that, that they they need to bring in legislation and enforce it you know it's kind of cites is is a toothless organization 
it's just you sign up to this agreement and uh, we we expect or rather hope that you won't break that agreement. So I mean, CITES is toothless. Uh, what? Because they don't have any enforcement, do they? They just set they just set this agreement of rules between countries around the world. Exactly, and it's like you brought up an interesting uh, issue there when you said that the illegal wildlife trade in in, in, in China for, for for well being the best example that uh, traditional Chinese med- medicine is thousands of years old. And I remember uh, Ted Riley, who was the the founder of. Uh, Conservation in in Swaziland, who I know very very well, is a, uh, a legend. Uh, he he said, "Look, the, the issue we've got is this: uh, we, we in the world we, we with Christianity and, and and Islam, we haven't solved that argument, and it's a thousand years old. The traditional Chinese medicine is five thousand years old, and you know we can't we can't solve solve the uh, the thousand year old problem. So." You know, what chance have we got with a 5,000-year-old problem? But the only way that we'll make this work, and, and again, I've had an about-face in, 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 a, in a decade of following this, is like social influences, such as, as Prince William, Prince Harry, David Beckham, uh, the, the, the younger Asians that are coming through, they've got access to, to media now, and, and they, will be, they can be and they will be influenced. Uh, they're, they're living in a modern age. China can't... Uh, keep everything uh, tight and, and, and drip feed it to, to their uh, their nationals. Now it's out there, and I think so, social influencers are the way forward on on uh, educating this the modern generations uh, of Asians. I, I, I really believe that 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 is the way forward on, on demand reduction for sure. Yeah, and no, I'd agree with that. Now, one other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, particularly in Africa and illegal trade, before we we go off and talk about something else, um, is is lions in Africa. Because I think that this, you know, everybody knows about rhino horns. It's been very well publicised. Everybody knows about ivory. Increasingly, people know about pangolins because there's been a very good campaign to raise that awareness since they got stamped with the the most illegally trafficked mammal in the world. And like I think it was 2018, they were given that label and, and then it made all the um it made all the newspapers kind of around the world but lions for a long time have kind of gone under the radar because a lot of that trade it's it's not really seen it's not visible you're not left with a massive carcass because a lot of that trade is coming from from lion farms so we've been we're increasingly seen it in the media and it gets mixed up in this whole canned trophy lion hunting discussion as well, which can make it quite complicated and confusing. I- explain the background of that, Pete, because I, I know that's, it's a subject that you have some knowledge on. Well, the whole canned uh, lion sort of hunting uh, fraternity, I, I, I mean, the, the, the whole thing of, about it, this captive bread, it's not even hunting, it's, cap- it's, the, it's the captive killing uh, of a it's the killing of a captive lion, and you know there's no hunting involved whatsoever. So you've got a semi-tame cat that's released in an area, often on the day or minutes before even of, of the hunt taking place, and then it's dressed up by some so-called PH walking you around uh, a fenced area uh, looking for this cat, and then picking up its spot following it and then and then killing it you know and i mean really you know who 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 wants to do such a thing uh, and but there was a demand for it there i mean there probably still there still is and, and this is an interesting one that the the the, the, the main uh, demand were, 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 was by far from the us 
but you know I mean, what pleasure could you have about putting that on your wall? Uh, you know, really? So, but but it was it was a big a big demand. Then uh, a couple of years ago, uh, SCI and the Dallas Safari Club International, uh, and then and then Fish and Wildlife. Everybody in the states was they, they, the, the writing was on the wall that this was actually damaging ethical hunting practices uh, being associated with canned lion hunting. So do you think they took? Do you think they took too long to come to that? realization do you think they were just hoping that it would fly under the radar because they must have been very well aware that a lot of them not sorry not a lot of the members some of their members were partaking in this there's no way that they didn't know yeah absolutely it was it was far too long they should have come out they should have come out vigorously against canned lion uh killing uh by tourism so canned lion killing tourism they should have come out uh against that 10 15 years ago Certainly, ten years ago, they should have. If they'd come out against that, and that's why we've got this trophy hunting ban coming coming in now, and it's and it, and, it, and for the US, they they they, they banned the import of captive bred lion trophies, uh, which was the right thing to do, and I, I believe France did, and uh, I think the Netherlands as well. Uh, how how did they? Um, I wonder how they defined whether it was captive or wild well it would be on the the uh, oh beyond the permit yeah so it'd be on the permit okay. where, where it was hunted and if it was captive or not uh now and 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 this is where the uk has fallen short so we we our shooting organizations which do a great job uh in this country that that i think that they've they've been as guilty as uh, as the the us have and and by just like brushing this under the carpet or, or ignoring it. And if we'd have come out against it, I don't think we would be in this situation now where all trophy hunting per se is being uh, rolled into that whole, the, the, the captive bred lion uh, trophy hunting. And the ban is going to be all encompassing. So we're, we're, we're going to lose a uh, conservation space. or lose uh, a, a lot of habitat because the, uh, the the hunting of certain species will be be banned, so it'll be blanket ban on species. And, and like, look, some of them absolutely. I mean, uh, we should not be import, uh, facilitating the import of uh, captive bred tame lions uh, into this country. And and that now has seen this situation develop, which there's pros and cons for it. I mean, I think any threatened species, do we really need to be hunting any threatened species and, 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 and uh, uh, importing the trophy? Uh, do we really, you know, it's kind of, we have to question that fact, uh, but it's where it's where it is. And uh, let, let's hope, I mean, let, let's look at it from, from, from a European perspective, European uh deer hunting, uh, wild boar, chamois, uh, the European species, uh, the trophies are, are boiled out and bleached trophies. Pretty much, that's the traditional way we uh, we, we process trophies. So you've got you've got no uh, uh, issues with that. Uh, uh, well, issues as in uh, zoonotic diseases or whatever, which is a big concern now, obviously because of the, the current pandemic. Uh, so you know, our I think the European House is in order. Really, I think pretty much in order. But now, because of this uh, roll-on effect of captive bred lion uh, hunting trophies, uh, even our own deer management is now looking at could possibly 
and suffer because of this. And if we'd have come out against it, and it's it's wrong in every respect. I mean, captive bred lions. I mean, they're exploited as a species. I don't think there's any species exploited uh, like 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 the, like, like the African lion. I mean, from from birth to beyond death. I mean, it, it, it's it's lion cub petting, walking with lions. Uh, Cam trophy hunting. Uh, There's also lion lion bone trade as well, which well, that's, is all that's, part of the that's, same. That's the beyond death part. So then, yeah. then they get rendered down into bones and 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 then and then tra- tra- traded in, 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 in into bones. Uh, so it's kind of you, you know it's it's like I say from, from birth uh, birth to, be, to 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 beyond death. Just as a final word on on lions, what is the because I've seen some of the the videos and the the way that these animals are kept and it's it's utterly disgusting how do you how how does that trade be completely squashed and removed from the face of the planet how how do we how do we how do we remove that because i mean i don't personally even think it's part of the it's not even part of the hunting discussion because i think it's so far removed from anything that most people in in the world who enjoy hunting and are putting meat in their freezer as a as a result of it or, or partaking in hunting in different parts of the world would even want to be associated or involved in because it, as you very rightly pointed out it is absolutely not hunting um but as, how do we as a, a society globally how do we kill the, this industry which is multifaceted as you said it's like that there's there's actually a, um a, tour, a wildlife tourism aspect of it, which is inc- incredibly questionable, with this the petting of cubs, and then this uh, international trade in, in bones as well. And what is being done, it, or d- does this really lie in the uh, application of regulation in the countries that it's happening? Which I think is mostly South Africa. Yeah, I think it, it's again we're back down to, to uh, effective law enforcement. And, and legislation. So get the legislation in, but enforce it. And it's like we said earlier uh, about the Americans being the the, the, the main uh, customers for captive bred lion killing. But that, that now the import of, of uh, trophies is banned into the US. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. The Russians have kind of filled, filled that void. And now, <laughs> wow, I yeah. didn't know that. So, so now they're, they're, they're actually hunting captive bred tigers in South Africa, or, or even as I saw a report last year uh, of jaguars. So they were releasing jaguars in, 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 in a, in, 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 as they would a canned lion and, and shooting a jaguar. But the, the, the Russians are now uh, t- sort of f- filling that void uh, and hunting tigers. And of course, these lion bones. They're a driver, as, as we talked about, the ivory trade being a driver for killing elephants. The, the lion bones are being sold in, in Asia as tiger bones. So this, this legal trade which goes out of South Africa is, is actually threatening wild tigers. But the, 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 the effort involved in, in, in killing wild tigers, because uh, there's not so many of them left, uh, is, is, is just easier to uh, import lion bones and 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 then rebrand them as tiger bones so i mean it's so it's so corrupt and it's a despicable industry and 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 for it to be even associated with ethical professional hunting uh, is is a tragedy pete we've been talking a lot about conservation at at a very high level this the global conservation of highly endangered species and illegal trades that's predominantly what you and i have been talking about 
But you are like at your core, you're 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 a hunter. You were a professional hunter for you know many years, guiding clients around the world. You're the editor of a hunting magazine, Sporting Rifle, um, in the UK. This might seem a weird conversation for people maybe outside or on the periphery of the field sports community that you would talk with such passion, depth and knowledge about these subjects, but you're someone who hunts. Explain this potential contradiction in people's minds because I think it's it's fascinating and very misunderstood. And I know because you and I have known each other for a very long time now um, that you, know, you, this is what you live and breathe every day. Is this? I mean, I can't remember the t- last time that you and I talked about, um, you know, a, I don't know, a rifle model. Really, I couldn't even tell you anymore because I pay so little attention to it. You know, this is very much the driver and focus of of your your thinking and your writing and the work that you're doing is global conservation. No, absolutely, and I think the, the the world's certainly some of the world's best conservationists actually were were, were farmer hunters. You know, history has shown us that for the last hundred and twenty years, for sure. Uh, but I think, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, field sports. I've always enjoyed hunting, but it's it's always been I've always done it from an ethical standpoint and uh, organised wildlife management, organised shooting. Uh, and hunting is a tool of conservation if it's used correctly. Uh, and unfortunately, there's more and more of it not being uh, used effectively or, or, or even... I think like, everyone should apply, what, is this ethical? Are we doing this for the right reasons? What is the benefit to the species? And I think you know that, that that's the mindset I've always had. And uh, there's a lot of people in the conservation space that understand that, and I think there's a lot of people in field sports that understand that. But there's always a rogue element. I mean, you, you only have to look at the, the the banking sector or the priesthood to see rogue elements. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I mean, tell me, in terms of as we sort of start to bring this conversation to a close, and I would like to have spent uh, more time on this, but maybe we can just chat again at some point. In terms of the country that you and I live in, we both live in the UK, and what the hunt the types of hunting that people partake in when you were younger and, and looking forward to the future what challenges do you see facing us because we're you know we're looking at restrictions of uh, on grouse moors and licensing potentially coming in Scotland where there's lots of noise about uh, licensing for releasing of non-native birds pheasant and partridge which has been a big part of the countryside and and hunting, particularly, well, I mean, just because you have more, more people down there, but particularly in England, but also up here in Scotland, that looks like that might change. You know, the landscape is shifting. Uh, stalking, I think, has probably been less changed, but there is very much this demonization of deer, uh, particularly up here in Scotland. What is your view on that? Well, you know, again, we're back to that overpopulation of, of a species that needs to be managed. And, you know, I'm very passionate about the UK's deer, and I think we do it very well. Uh, what I don't like to see is, is mass culling of deer and not taking into account uh, the, the, the age, sex uh, of the animal. Uh, it's just like numbers will go in there and, and, and wipe out a block. I think that's wrong. It's it, it's bad for the profession. Uh, it undoes much of, of the tradition and, 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 and good manage, management that 
the professional managers and indeed some of the amateur stalkers in this country. I think we we certainly lead uh, pretty much in, in in Europe on 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 deer management, and I'd like to see that stay there. Uh, I, I hate to hear of these these mass calls uh, in, in in forestry blocks, for instance. Yeah, look, deer do do damage, but you know it's down to professional deer managers to to do that, not not to do it in an unethical way. Uh, and I'd hate to see that that grow. What I would like to see is more responsible stalking and and uh, you know guys such as ourselves bringing on the the next generation to understand deer management. It's not about killing deer as uh, it really isn't. I mean, there is an element of that out there, and I think social media shows the worst of of, of that bad element within our own ranks, and uh, that's that, that, that's a different story. So I think you know I'll always be involved in deer management because I love deer. I love managing deer. I'm very very fortunate to manage a large acreage, and we have a healthy population, uh, and and it's great to see that. And 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 you balance the the damage with the venison harvest and. Uh, yeah, it's it's good to be able to do my little bit in a very, 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 very small part of the world. And if, if everybody has that kind of attitude, as most professional stalkers in this country do, and, and indeed in, in, in uh, Western Europe, and I, th- I think we should be good. But it's all about educating the next generation. And what about what about pheasant and partridges and the the discussion that's going on in England now with licensing of release of birds do you see a future there do you think we're that'll still be a component of the countryside as driven pheasant and partridge shoots yeah i think it will I mean, decades. We, you know i think we've argued for legislation and enforcement uh in in, in in various countries abroad that have got ineffective law enforcement but you know we don't want death by legislation here we have got effective law enforcement uh, in many areas, not in every areas, you know the 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 the, the game act is like 150 years old, and we can't convict uh, hair courses because the, we've got antiquated law, which is ridiculous. So that needs looking at. But look, you know the the gamekeepers of this uh, of this country certainly are, are, are this countries as in the United Kingdom. Uh, they do some great work, and I think the the British wildlife we have. Is testament to the professionalism of the gamekeepers that look after vast chunks of our countryside, the great British countryside, and do it very, very well. Uh, and I think if we if we lost that, uh, that 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 would be tragic. But and there is a but, and I think the, these massive bag days uh, it's, it's just not needed. You know, it's kind of it's bad for the sport. I think you. Can, you can go too much of anything, you know, everything in moderation. Too much of anything is usually a bad thing. And these ridiculously high bag days, I don't think, is doing uh, game shooting any good whatsoever. Uh, I think well managed estates that have decent days. I mean, you know, if you want to shoot more than 200 birds in a day, I mean, 200 birds is, is, is a lot of birds to shoot in a day, I think. Everybody's got a lot of shooting at that. Everybody's had a good day, you know, shooting. Twice that, I think, you know, it's a lot. But shooting thousands of birds in a day—that's that's not doing anybody any favors. No, and I don't think it's it's necessary to maintain the argument that is made for these commercial days, which is that it also benefits the areas that are being managed. I think that that can be done economically at 
at lower levels with with lower densities, as has been proven. I mean, especially up here in Scotland, you know, a lot of the estates that run it are run at very moderate levels, and it and it works. Like it works, it works pretty well. You feel good walking around there. You feel like there is this um, this give and take between the necessity to run it as an economic enterprise, but also plant trees and, and hedgerows and create areas which are sympathetic to the, the the wild inhabitants of that of that area too yeah absolutely i mean i'm fortunate where i live it's a beautiful part of the country and the estates the game estates we've got a lot of game estates uh here uh and, and they're all managed very very well uh it's great to see that uh, you know we, we haven't got these massive commercial shoots in my area uh which is great um uh, so yeah all, all good the great british countryside the gamekeepers have got a massive part to play in that and and that's why we still have it yeah it's it's really frustrating to me i i see this mentioned all the time when i'm reading um publications and when you're reading uh press particularly about the declines of wildlife around the world and the uk is often held up as this this place that has no wildlife left with some of the greatest declines around the world you know particularly in the northern hemisphere and well, the the numbers for surveys uh, don't lie. I think, unfortunately, what it doesn't reflect is that the vast majority of those declines are because of the incredibly intensive agriculture we have here. And that has facilitated the vast majority of it. And it doesn't acknowledge the other uses of the countryside, of which you know, we have a long, long history um, using parts of the countryside for various forms of hunting. And that has actually been the saving grace in many ways. I mean, that's the one exception, which I have to point out because it, otherwise it would be pointed out to me, is the illegal persecution historically of, of raptors through poisoning and any other means, which has been legislated against and largely speaking doesn't go on anymore. Obviously, there will always be some arseholes, as you pointed out, in every walk of life. Um, but the the actual protection of areas for the purpose of whether it be a, a grouse moor or a deer forest or the, these low ground areas where there has been management over many years has actually provided these like inadvertent reserves in a way for much of the wildlife that has been lost in many other parts of the country. Just lastly, Pete, just as uh, as we bring this to a close, I wanted to just ask you about publishing because publishing particularly this year 2020 it's been i know from various friends and and people who are involved in it around the world that it's been really really hard because uh people have been at home um it's it's been very hard to make that work in in a, in a time where there is this question over do people even want things printed on paper anymore you've been involved in the industry a long time does Field sports publications in general have a future? Do they need to move and evolve? You know, what do you see? What do you see as the future for that? Because that's, to some extent, that was you know part of my in as a as a youngster to be intrigued about it was to pick something off the shelf, even if I wasn't going to buy it. <laughs> Although, as I with my pocket money, eventually you would go and buy it because you wanted to take it home. Was to have. There's something in your hand and flick through it and feel like you got to know the characters and the people who are involved. And it enthused me to to learn more in many respects. Is there a future for it? Well, I think print publishing's in decline. Anybody who denies it, you know, 
clearly delusional or, or a liar. Uh, and, and the access to information now is that the, the things are all going digital. I, I mean, I think like the the old stalwarts like myself like to lock yourself away in the loo, sat on the loo with a with a hard copy magazine and read it cover to cover. <laughs> you know, the the, the 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 younger generations now are used to seeing things on uh, getting get there, soaking their information up on, on, on iPads and, and and mobile devices. You know, it's the, it's the way it's going. So there needs to be a transformation. People want short form video. They want to watch. They, they don't like the three and a half hour long. Uh, blood and guts war movies that 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 I like. They want they, they want to watch ten, ten, five, six, seven minute videos about something that that's uh, of interest to them. So I think there's, there's this uh, information uh, in niche in niche areas, niche information. It's but it's it, it, it's it's a lot stronger than say printed news media because you, you can read read a news story on your ipad and flick it up you can't you know like a, a four-page feature by byron pace on on uh uh stalking rodeo you, you're not gonna uh t- turn over very easily uh on on, on, on an ipad so the, the, there's this transformation phase that publishing is going through and it's how to monetize it that's that's the the difficult part of this uh, is that how, how do you monetize uh digital media you know it's kind of even the big guns are struggling with that no it is a challenge absolutely pete i am not going to keep you any longer because i know that uh, you're a busy man and it's been a fascinating discussion as it is uh i would i i'm looking forward to having you on again but next time we need to be in the same room because i think that could be fun and we'll do it when uh, maybe when there's less less coronavirus knocking around the place, so we have more freedom to move around the country early next year, hopefully with uh, the Oxford vaccine about to be rolled out. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. We look forward to hooking up Byron, uh, knocking back a couple of spare side malts, and shooting the shit. <laughs> Good stuff, Pete. Thanks for your time. Okay, mate. You take care.